If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to the 28th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. And as you are turning there, I might offer a personal testimony by way of introduction. Ever since I was converted and became a Christian while I was in college, there's one particular holiday that I've had a difficult time with. And you might be able to guess the holiday I'm talking about. It's Easter. That's right, you heard me right. Ever since I became a Christian, I've had a difficult time with Easter. I know that sounds strange, and, and I'm not trying to say that I, I don't believe in the Easter story. I, when I became a Christian, I believed it more than ever. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus not only lived a perfect life, but that He was crucified on a cross, that He was buried, and that He victoriously rose again from the dead. The problem was not believing that. The problem was, as a new Christian, I started reading my Bible. And, and I started reading my Bible, not like I used to read my Bible, because I had a Bible and I would read it sometimes. I would read it kind of like, you know, the magical bottle. And if you rub the bottle, maybe the genie will come out and, and in some sort of mystical way, you'll, you'll get more stuff in life. And I used to try to read the Bible that way at times. But, but now as a new Christian, I, I'm reading the Bible and I'm, I'm asking myself questions like, who is God? How has He revealed Himself? And, and what does He say about life and meaning? And, and what does He say about me? And what does He say about what I'm supposed to do? And what I'm supposed to think? And what I'm supposed to believe? And, and that started changing everything. I, I read things like this. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. First importance. Or this, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Or Colossians 3, 4, Christ, who is our life. Or the first passage, or one of the first few passages I ever memorized as a baby Christian. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that is all of you, as a living, that is all of the time, and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And I saw this stuff everywhere. Which is to say, my life out of response to what Jesus did on the cross for me and dying and then rising again from the dead, my life is all about Christ. I'm to live my life out of thankfulness for what He's done and it has to do not with the Lenten season, whatever that is, uh, not with Holy Week, whatever that is, not with Easter, whatever that is, Ishtar, Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, that explains rabbits, that explains bunnies, or rabbits and bunnies, it explains eggs, but, but I started having a harder and harder time with holidays, it didn't make sense to me. And some of you share the same kind of testimony. The more you read the Bible, you see that it's all about Christ, everything is about Christ, we live for Christ, we die for Christ, everything is about Him based upon what He's done for us, Christ who is our life. And so to try to, to narrow everything down to a season or a week or a day just doesn't make any sense. I started feeling like, you know, that, that husband who, who is, to be blunt, a jerk to his wife. 
all year long, and then on Valentine's Day, he buys her a cheap box of chocolates. Didn't make sense. And so perhaps I have some psychological hang-ups about holidays. <laughs> Maybe that's what you think. <laughs> what I think is actually true is when you read the Bible, it sheds tons of light on reality. And we have to sort of rethink lots of things. This morning, we will talk about the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28. And I trust we'll look at it with passion and enthusiasm. I am so thrilled to be able to preach up on the, about the resurrection today, to talk about Christ dying in our place and rising in our place. But I talked about that last week. Oh, and, and we looked at that the week before. <laughs> and the week before, and guess what we're going to talk about next week? And the next week, and the next week. And guess what is supposed to motivate me as a Christian to live my life tomorrow? It's not even Sunday. It's the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. This is Christian living. This is, this is just the ABCs of what we're about. And so I can't wait to talk about the resurrection and, and, and look at that this morning. But I, I just want to make sure that I'm reminding you that it's okay to feel a bit out of place with all of these holidays. It's probably a good sign. And if you haven't felt that yet, the more you read the Bible, trust me, you will. Because you will see that it's all about Him. Well, now that I have that off my chest. <laughs> Matthew 28 is what we're going to look at this morning. And we are going to look at seven responses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it is going to be Magnificent. Seven responses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And, and these are tied to the historical event. So some of these things we certainly wouldn't say are repeatable things. But yet you won't be able to help yourself. You'll see things in here that you'll say, well, while we're not now looking at the historical event here in the 21st century, I see a lot of these same kinds of things happen even today, even though we're separated by a couple of thousands, thousand years. So I can't wait for us to look at this and, and glorify Christ again on this particular day. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this splendid opportunity we have to do what Christians are called to do, and that is to glorify Christ. And it's all founded upon, it's all based upon that which is of first importance, our priority as a church, our priority as Christians the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we look now at this historical event, may we understand it better so that we might understand and appreciate the benefits that come to us even as a result of this great work of Christ. God, encourage us today, challenge us today. Do something supernatural in our midst through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the power of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first response, and I'll try to keep these to one word, the first response we see in Matthew 28 to the bodily resurrection of Jesus is fear. It's fear. Look with me, if you would, in ver at verse 1 of Matthew 28, where it says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. 
Perhaps you've heard it a hundred times. There they are. They're coming, uh, they're coming to, to look at the grave. We look at the other gospel accounts and we see that as they're coming, they're bringing spices. They're, they're coming to do what we call paying their respects, honoring Jesus whom they had loved and who had loved them. So they're going. But we also learn in Mark's account that they're having a conversation along the way. And one thing that they're concerned about is, How are we going to be able to get to Jesus because there's this stone keeping us from getting inside? And Matthew's account tells us in chapter 27, uh, it's very sizable, so these women won't be able to move it away. It's a problem, at least in their minds. But it's not really a problem when we keep reading. Let's go ahead and do that. Verse 2 says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, which is frightening enough by itself, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And we know it's not to let Jesus out, it's to let them in, right? He's already gone. And so the angel rolls the stone away and the angel sits up there. I like to think as if to say, that was nothing. (laughs) There he is, you know, twiddling his thumbs, so to speak. Verse 3 says, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Here's the punchline for this section, verse 4. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I like that, don't you? If you've been reading the gospel account, you like that. If you're a fan of Jesus, (laughs) you like that. That's poetic justice. Here you have the guard. I I take it it was a Jewish guard, as we talked about last time. And and he would have been sent there by the Jewish religious leaders who were the ones who opposed Jesus at every single turn. He is there as their representative. And so I like it that he is being a sissy right now. I like it that, that, that he is scared out of his socks if you were wearing them. I like it that he is terrified. The more afraid he is, the better. Why? Because there's this impressive angel like lightning and, and, and it's, it's this magnificent, powerful angel and he's terrified as a result. And, and, and we say, wow, that angel must have been great. But what I would suggest to you is as you see the greatness of the angel, and I'm not trying to say that the angel wasn't great. I would suggest to you, as you, as you look at verse 4 and you say, I'm glad those guys got what they deserved. Be more impressed with Jesus. And I want to show you why. If you turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, we will see that this great and impressive angel, and he's meant out to be a great and impressive angel, if we were to to push fast forward and look ahead a little bit, uh, this angel, along with more angels than, than you can count, will one day be praising, constantly exalting, impressed with Jesus Christ. So think about the logic for a moment. Here you have these guards, the tough guys, temple guards, and they're guarding the tomb. And then the massive, powerful angel comes, and it scares them out of their wits, and we say, that's good. But then, let's see these angels in a different context, and who are they below? Who are they impressed with? They're impressed with Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5.11 says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels... 
around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's where I got more than we could count. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And that begs a question. If that's true, that angels like this big, bad, powerful angel frightened the temple guards to the point where they were paralyzed, and Jesus is greater than the angel, then why is it that when Jesus was on earth, that people weren't paralyzed by fear and worshiping Him? It would only make sense. See, this is where we get to the greatness of Christ and how He's even greater. And the answer to that question that it begs is because when Jesus was on earth, He came here and He humbled Himself and He became one of us, speaking the truth. And by divine design, He came here and was opposed by the religious leaders ultimately ending in His rejection and then His crucifixion on the cross on our behalf because He humbled Himself. And that's why everyone wasn't running around terrified all the time because if they would have been, they never would have crucified Him. He never would have died in our place and He never would have risen again from the dead. So that was a long way around me saying, when you read verse 4 and you see how impressive the angel is, just remember That angel is nothing compared to how impressive Jesus is in His greatness and in His great humility, which further shows His greatness. All things point back to Christ ultimately in the end and His greatness, and this certainly is one of those instances. So when I see the greatness of the angel, I have to say, He's great, Christ is greater. Let's move on to a second response. So these are the somebodies, the, the, the temple guards, and now we're going to move on to the quote-unquote nobodies, supposedly, but they're actually the ones the angels want to talk to. Number two, a second response to the bodily resurrection is joy, is joy. Look at verse 5. The angel said to the women, he didn't even talk to those other guys, scaredy cats. <laughs> He's actually there to talk to the women, which stands out. Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. And if you read that once, you've read it a hundred times if you've been a Christian very long at all. I know I have. But, but I want to slow us down a little bit and let's pay attention to the words. Please pay attention. The angel says, I know, in verse 5, that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Just keep that in your mind. I know you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. And you know what? Logic would tell us this is a good place to find Jesus who has been crucified because that's His grave. And if you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified and this is His grave, logic would tell us He's most certainly here because if you've been crucified by experts in crucifixion, which the Romans were, they crucified thousands and thousands of people, you'll find Him here. That's how it's supposed to read, really. But but it doesn't read that way, and and that's on purpose. Let's read the end of verse 5 again, and then keep reading into verse 6. I know you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified, and then verse 6 is amazing. He is not here. 
And we scratch our heads and say, whoa, something weird is happening here. Something extraordinary. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified, and that's his grave, but he's not here. Keep reading. For he is risen, just as he said. Just as he said in chapter 16, verse 21, chapter 17, verse 23, chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. But I just would encourage you to reread 5 and 6 and reread 5 and 6 and reread 5 and 6 because it's meant to stand out with lights flashing. You're looking for Jesus who had been crucified. Oh, if you've been crucified and this is your grave, guess where you will be and guess where you will stay? In the grave. He's not here. Say what? Been crucified and he's not here? Something is going on that's not quite right. That is extraordinary. Well, yeah, He is risen, just as He said. Then verse 6 says, Come, see the place where He was lying. I love 5 and 6. I love just stretching it out, thinking it through. I love reading the Bible slower. I love reading the Bible thoughtfully. You read things and you think, has that always been like that? Yep. Then the angel says in verse 7, this is very logical, go quickly and tell his disciples that he, and I'm going to insert for effect because of the flow, who was crucified <laughs> has risen from the dead. This is, this is extraordinary. This is, this is splendid. He keeps emphasizing the one who is crucified, <laughs> who should be here. He's risen from the dead. This is extraordinary. And you're, what I want you to do is to do what comes natural to someone who hears that somebody who had been crucified is now not only not here, but they're alive. What do you do? You go and you tell. And you tell people that he loved and who loved him. I mean, you, you just can't help. This is just the natural thing to do. Verse 7 goes on to say, you can look at me and see. And behold... It gets better. He who is going ahead of you, he, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. And we can read between the lines in verse, between verses seven and eight and see in timing that he actually appears be, to them before he gets to Galilee. If we were to look all the, at all the accounts, but that's the official meeting place where they will all gather and be with him. And then verse eight says, and they left the tomb quickly. Yeah, I'll bet they did. <laughs> you could smell the rubber burning on the bottom of their sandals is what you could do. And they left the tomb quickly with fear. I'll bet. Not the same kind of fear that the soldiers had. But, I mean, this is amazing. And you're just a bundle of emotions and everything happening here. This is absolutely outstanding with fear. And then it says, and great joy. That's their response. Great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Now to better appreciate their joy, remember what these ladies had experienced. They were there when everything went black at the crucifixion. They were there when the earth shook at the crucifixion. They were there when Jesus cries out to His Father in agony. They were there when Jesus extraordinarily, like no one had ever done before from the Romans' perspective, gave up His life and breathed His last voluntarily. They saw it all. They saw the Jesus who had been brutalized. 
They saw the Jesus who had been, as Isaiah the prophet says, marred more than any man. So, remember that they had seen that Jesus, the crucified, executed, dead Jesus. So for Him to be not only not in the tomb, but to be raised from the dead, and He's going to meet up with them in Galilee is totally rocking. I mean, it is rocking their world. and I mean, they just can't contain the joy because they're eyewitnesses. It's amazing. It's, yeah, they would have had great joy. So they, they experienced all the negative, and now they're seeing the positive. They can't contain the joy. And stop and think, Jesus is not only alive, that's great because they love Jesus. But Jesus is alive for them if He uh, did what He said He did, which is to die for them and rise for them. Not only that, they have great joy because Jesus, by rising from the dead, proves that He really was that promised Messiah that He'd been talking about all along throughout His earthly ministry. And so the joy is just coming out of them. This is great news. So they're running. And on their way to the disciples, something happens. Number three, a third response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus in its historical context is worship. Verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus, just to keep the flow, let me insert in your mind who they had seen brutally crucified, marred more than any man. Behold, Jesus met them and, and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and, and worshipped him. And, and we would ask the question, what else would you do? I mean, again, remember, they were eyewitnesses. They saw the whole thing happen. They, they saw that it was final. It was done. He was as dead as dead can be. And now he's there meeting them. What do you do? You do the only thing that would be sane to do. You fall at His feet and you grab His feet and you worship Him is what you do. You worship a risen, crucified Jesus. This is absolutely amazing. There's only one explanation in their minds. He really is who He said He was. He's the risen Lord. He's the King. He's the Messiah, the Messiah. We will worship Him. It's the right response. I mean, think about the implications. Okay, they love Him. He's raised. He loves them. But think about the implications. And it would take the rest of our you know, life, and I'll give the rest of my life, trying to teach the Bible and explain the implications of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, think of all the great Asians. Propitiation. Justification. Sanctification. Glorification. Redemption and all of the other great Asians that we love. And they're not just theological isms that we call Asians, as funny as it sounds. Spiritual realities that have to do with us that God makes personal, that all go back and are founded and grounded upon death, burial, and resurrection. What do you do when you see that He wasn't just some sort of teacher? He's risen from the dead. And he was really dead. 
What do you do? You worship. You worship. And did you notice that he doesn't say, stop that. Worship is only for God. We see that happening in the New Testament. Well, he doesn't stop them because he's no mere man. And it wasn't that he just didn't want to inconvenience anybody and spoil the moment because he is going to tell them to stop doing something. So he had a, he had a perfect opportunity. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. So he's spoiling the moment, all right. He's telling them not to do something, but he doesn't say don't worship me. He says just don't be afraid. Well, why might they have been afraid? They, they could have been afraid because they, they could have thought, this is too good to be true, and I'm afraid I'm just imagining things. Uh, I'm afraid this can't really be reality. Or they could be afraid that he's come back to judge because when he returns, he's judging. Jesus says, no, don't be afraid. They're worshiping, and they're afraid, and he says, don't be afraid, as if to say, just worship. Do not fear. And then he gives them more instructions in verse 10. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. The risen Lord who had been crucified. Wow. Well, as good as all of this is, we come to number four, a fourth response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Number four, deception. Some people respond when they hear that Jesus has risen from the dead, and they respond with deception. Here's where the, 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 the tenor Here's where the, the, the track changes on the soundtrack. So we've got the, the upbeat, full, glorious orchestra pounding away. How great is this worship? And the track changes to something morose, morbid. We see it in verse 11. Now while they were on their way, Notice the change. While this is happening, while this good thing is happening, at the very same time, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests. If you're new to the Bible, those are the religious leaders who said they were waiting for someone like Jesus to come and be their king. It's not true, though. At the end of verse 11, they reported all that had happened. Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, I wrote in my notes, read schemed here. Consulted, it's so dignified. (laughs) They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Is that a good lie? You know, I... I lived the first 19 years of my life as an unbeliever, and I think I pretty much could have written a doctoral dissertation on how to lie. I was a good liar, kind of refined the art. I can spot a bad lie a mile away. That is a horrible lie. My parents would have saw that one coming a mile away. Did you see the, the, the stupidity of it? His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The last time I checked, while you're sleeping, you don't really know what's going on. It's not even a good lie. But it's not even supposed to be a good lie. Because it's a lie. You've got to be able to see through it. Verse 14. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him and, and, and keep you out of trouble. 
And that's not surprising because by now, the Jewish religious leaders had, had perfected the art of compromise with Rome, even though they're supposed to be arch enemies and they would kill each other if they could and all of that sort of thing. The religious leaders of Judaism, they, they, they were so in deep with Rome and since they were really trying to do the same thing, which is have power and money, they, they were great at compromise. So they can tell the soldiers, hey, if there's a problem, we're certified negotiators. We are skilled in the art of compromise. We'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. And they sign off. So apparently that it really was true. Verse 15, and they took the money and did as they'd been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Now, back in chapter 27, when Jesus is on the cross, if you recall, the Jews said mockingly, come down from the cross and then we'll believe. I think it's like in verse 42 or somewhere around there. And I probably said, knowing me, being the passive, soft-spoken person that I am, I probably read that and said, liars. And you know what? Now we know they are liars here they said because it was mockingly come down and we will believe and what did we just see happen in chapter 28 Jewish guards so they're credible in the eyes of the Jews objectively give evidence that he's not in the grave anymore that he has that kind of power and what do they do Believe? No, they don't believe. They bribe somebody to make up a lie about him. You see, evidence doesn't really demand a verdict when you're dealing with people who are depraved and love themselves and love their sin and their power and control and money is at stake. They've got the evidence now. And what do they do? Repent and believe? No. They make up a lie. The stakes are too high. The stakes are too high because if Jesus rose from the dead, then He really is who He said He was, right? He is the divine Son. Romans 1.4 ties that to the resurrection. If He really rose from the dead, it shows that they're frauds and hucksters and they weren't really waiting for Messiah. If, if He really rose from the dead, guess what else that proves? Proves those religious leaders are busted. They're in trouble. Because in the Bible, the resurrection is tied together with the coming judgment of Christ. If you would, I'd encourage you to turn to, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. If you're new to the Bible and it's going to take you a while to find that, you don't need to go there. But it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. And these religious leaders, they, they want to deceive as efficiently and effectively as they can because they need Jesus to be dead. He's not dead, so they need to come up with a way to, to, to present him as dead, and so they'll go to great lengths to keep him dead, at least in the minds of the people. And I think Acts 17 is always a good passage to remember when it comes to, we wonder, why do people try to undermine the resurrection? Why do they, why do they not like the resurrection so, so much? Acts 17.31 says, because he, God, has fixed a day. Notice God fixes days. God appoints days 
God knows, not only knows the future, He fixes days in the future in which He will judge. God will judge the world in righteousness. And then here's something you may not have learned in Sunday school. How? Through a man, capital M, whom He has appointed. Who's that? Having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Who, who is God going to, to carry out His judgment through? It, it's, it's Jesus. And, and how do we know that's true? We know that's true because He rose again from the dead. And one of the reasons He rose from the dead, not the only reason, one of the reasons is to show everybody and put the world on notice. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. Repent. Because God has fixed such a day. It's no wonder the religious leaders would do anything they possibly could to be underhanded. It's no wonder that people today, religious leaders, will do anything they can to get rid of the resurrection. It's no wonder the Quran acknowledges Jesus is a good person and all those kinds of things and denies that Jesus died a substitutionary, atoning death and denies that He rose bodily from the grave. It has to. And craftily, at least it talks about Jesus to sort of defuse the situation. It has to. Because if not, then Jesus really is who He said He was. He really is the King of kings. He really is the Savior. He really is the coming judge. Let's take it out of the realm of other religions. Let's just put it in our own personal lives. If I weren't a Christian by the sovereign grace of God, I would make it my mission in life to get rid of the resurrection. I would enroll in as many programs as I could and write as many dissertations as I could to get rid of the resurrection. Because if Jesus rose again from the dead, I am severely busted if I'm not a believer. There are all kinds of underlying motivations. It's the greatest news ever that He conquered sin and the grave and death on behalf of those who would believe, but at the same time, it is a major, massive, frightening warning that all things won't just continue the way they have. God has fixed a day. He has created a day. And He's proven that by raising Jesus from the dead. Well, let's move on to something more positive. A fifth response to the bodily resurrection is more worship. We'll do this one quickly. Number five, more worship, or worship yet again. Verse 16 says, But, notice the contrast, despite these cleverly devised tales and and underhanded, under-the-table financial transactions to try to cover up the truth, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Verse 17, when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Of course they did, right? For the same reasons the women would have. What else do you do? They saw what happened to Jesus. They knew what he claimed. (laughs) Now he's alive. What do you do? You worship. Or you make up lies about him. Pretty much comes down to one of two options. Let's move on. A sixth response to his bodily resurrection is doubt. The end of verse 16, look at that. But some were doubtful. And this is where sometimes Christians get nervous. We start backpedaling. You know, we do this. You can tell I like the water. I, I'm on a raft backpedaling. You know, we, we want to get away from that. We get nervous. Some are doubtful. 
We get nervous because, that, you know, if some were, were, were doubtful of the resurrection, then somehow that maybe that, 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 that compromises the, the truthfulness or the veracity of the Bible, or it compromises the truthfulness or the veracity of Jesus really rising from the dead. And so we say, well, you know, maybe it doesn't really mean doubtful. Maybe it just means they were unsure. And, you know, maybe we can look up a few Greek words and alakazam, alakazoo. I don't What's that from? I don't know. Watch too much TV as a kid. I don't doubt that they doubted. In fact, I'm good with the fact that Matthew records, while some worshipped, some doubted. I'm glad that's in there. I'm glad that's in there because actually it ends up being an apologetic for the truthfulness of the Bible. It's recorded what really happened. If this were the gospel according to Pat Abendraw, we'd have a lot of problems. But I guarantee you I'd take that out. I would just have everybody worshiping, everybody believing because Jesus is so magnificent. The truth is some were worshiping but others were doubting. And I would like to tease this out a little bit more. If you were an eyewitness, if you were an eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus, you saw it all happen. If you were an eyewitness and you heard that He'd risen from the dead and you saw Him perhaps for the first time, I think if you weren't doubting, at least to a certain degree, you probably were sleeping at the crucifixion. And if you really saw what happened to him, in light of what the Bible says happened to him, for him to be alive is is more than you can even fathom. I think I would have doubted as well, at least at first. And I don't want to have a simple solution to this. But if you read on in verse 18, we do learn that Jesus was a distance away and he comes closer. That could be some of the reason why some were doubting. I don't know. I just know that some were. That was a response. Some were doubting. Just what happened? Sort of makes sense in light of what happened to him. Let's move on to the seventh and final response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Number seven, command. Command. And what I mean is this was Jesus' response. How did Jesus respond to his resurrection? And by the way, we're studying the gospel according to Matthew and just worked out timing-wise uh, that we covered Matthew 28 today. We're going to have to go back a little bit and look at the Great Commission in the future. But this morning, I wanted to make sure we did all of the chapter because I think it's all tied to resurrection. I love this. I, I, I love this last one here because Jesus responds to his own resurrection. Verse 18, don't, don't take 18 out of the context. Leave it in the context of flow, resurrection narrative, in light of the resurrection. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I rose from the dead. I was crucified. You were there. You saw me. I rose again from the dead. And I want you to know something now. In light of my resurrection, guess what? I've been given all authority. And in light of all authority that I've been given, I'm going to speak. If anybody, folks, has the right to tell people what to do, 
It's somebody who lived a perfect life, was crucified unjustly, rose again from the dead, and here he is! Because nobody's done that. See, what has happened is, he's proven that he really is who he said he was. Matthew chapter 1 started with presenting Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel. This is the one they've been waiting for. He was the one who would come and save His people from their sins. He was the one who would come and fulfill all the Old Testament prophecy. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign Messiah. And He's done everything along the way to confirm that. And now, by rising again from the dead, He has proven that He is the eternal one. He's not a mere man. Therefore, He can fulfill the the prophecy of Daniel 7 and be the eternal reigning Messiah, King, God. He is it. He, he really is it. And the, and the resurrection affirms that He is. And, and by the way, it wasn't that He didn't have authority before. He had the authority over nature. He had the authority over sickness. He had authority uh, to forgive sins. He had the authority uh, over uh, all of these different realms. He showed His authority. But now in some unique way, like it was never shown before, He has risen from the dead. This is Philippians 2 stuff. Now he is highly exalted. Well, he was highly exalted before, but now he's highly exalted as the God-man in a special, unique way. And so now he has every right as the king, as the sovereign, because that's what Matthew is presenting to us from the chapter 1 all the way through, as the king, as the eternal sovereign, he speaks. What does he say? Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples, followers, followers of mine. But notice here, this is sovereignty talk. It carries the weight of of 28 chapters. And then post-resurrection, in light of, of who I said I was, in light of who I am because I rose from the dead, go and make followers of me. If he hadn't done what he said he did, and if he hadn't risen from the dead, he couldn't have said that. Make followers of me, make disciples. And notice what it says. Of all the nations. If he's all sovereign, all authority has been given to him. You go and make followers of me of all the people groups, all the ethnos, all the nations. He's an egomaniac if he didn't have all authority, but he has all authority because he rose again from the dead and no one has ever done that. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, putting them on the same level as the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Please follow the, the on-purpose emphasis. All authority, verse 18. Disciples of all the nations, verse 19. Verse 20, all that I commanded you, and I will be with you always. I love it. I'm the king of all. You go out, tell the truth about me so that they become my followers. Why? Because I have all authority to tell you what to do and to call them to follow me. And then what do you do? You teach them everything that I said because I'm the sovereign king and I will always be with you in your efforts. You see, even even Matthew 28, the Easter text... Even Matthew 28, the Easter text, teaches us that it's not just about Easter. 
all sovereign over everyone and He says they should all follow Me and do everything that I say. It's awesome. If we read our Easter text in context, we see that it's not about a day or a week or a season. It's about everything. Christ is our life. And He proves it by the resurrection. Isn't this great? This is fabulous. This is outstanding. He's the sovereign King. He's our life. He is everything. Pray with me. Father, thank You for this morning and thank You for this time that we're able to have to focus on Christ's great work. And I'm so thankful that by Your grace, that's just what we do. We praise You that He fulfilled all of those promises of the Old Testament, of a coming Messiah who would be different than every other Messiah, different from every other king. Because He would rule and reign with perfection. He would rule and reign forever. That You did not leave Him in the grave, but raised Him up on the third day. We love Jesus and we love to exalt Him as the eternal King. We're so thankful that He rose again from the dead and that we don't have to be just another religion trying to get people to improve themselves. God, it's only by Your grace and only according to Your mercy. Christ has done it all. There's nothing left for us to do. We praise You for Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.